Welcome to the Mark series, part 61. Okay, you don't have to watch part 1 through 60 to get what we're doing today. Today we're in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. This is just right before he goes to the cross, right before he's betrayed by Judas. This is literally the last moment of freedom that Jesus has before he, he's, you know, traipsed around from courtroom to courtroom in illegal uh, night, night courtroom sessions. We'll talk about that in future weeks. And then he stands before Pilate, then he's put upon the cross. This is the last moment of freedom. It's also his last opportunity to just walk away. And this is also Jesus's moment of the most intense agony and emotional and psychological strain that we see probably of anybody in any individual inside the um, the Gospels or maybe even the whole Bible altogether. All there's there's Mika. Look, she, she decided to come and say hi to you guys a little bit. So there's her, her tail anyways. Apparently she doesn't want to doesn't want to show you her face. <laughs> uh, that being said. Uh, this is pretty serious stuff, as you saw from the thumbnail that I've used today, that there's there's this idea of Jesus we get from artwork, especially artwork back in like the, the, the Renaissance period and on, where Jesus is, and I'll show you some examples, Jesus is like praying in the garden. Here's the disciples asleep. There's Jesus praying. There's an angel helping him according to one of the scriptures um, and one of the gospels. And the angel, of course, is a naked baby because, because I'll tell you what, some of these guys were great artists, but they were terrible at theology. This is from the 1500s from Giorgio Vasari. And Jesus is praying in the garden and, you, and he's just, he's almost lighthearted, right? As he's praying, as he's reaching out to take the cup. Man, you are just a spaz. And I'm um, talking to the cat, not you guys. Then you have another example of Jesus praying in the garden. This comes from 1490 approximately from Pietro Perugino. And G, you know the disciples are asleep. Then you see way in the background, you can barely see it on your screen, but way in the background to the, to the uh, right of Jesus, I think on your screen, unless I'm reversed. I'm trying to remember if, if my screen reverses things or not. At any, way, you, at any rate, you see these guys that are dressed in like medieval period or early Renaissance period clothing uh, because... It's normal for artists when they depict Jesus to make them look like people from their own time period, right? Jesus doesn't look Jewish. The disciples don't really look Jewish. Um, they, they do weird things. Uh, Jesus looks looks like he's European because the guys doing the painting are Europeans. I don't think this was a racist thing. Person, not, not that no one's ever been racist about this because people have. I think, you know, when, when I've seen Korean artwork of Jesus and he looks like he's Korean, why is this? Because everybody the artist knows looks Korean. So they go, I'm going to make Jesus. So they make him look Korean. Like I, I get why that happens. What's weird is when you ship this artwork out to other cultures around the globe and then it misrepresents Christ because it's suggesting that he looks like a, a European or something when he's really not. Um, here's another one. This is from Dulce and Carlo Dulce in 1650 approximately. And you notice there's even Jesus sweating blood. But he's obviously not in agony. Like in all these pictures, Jesus is not in agony. Even up until recent times, here's Heinrich Hoffmann. Um, this is in about 1911, or he died in 1911, so sometime before that. And Jesus is just very composed, very peaceful. He has like a table, the, a rock table that he's like praying on with his hands gently folded and he's glancing up. And he just looks very stoic. None of this represents what we read about in, in the Gospel of Mark, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is in utter agony. He is, he is, I'm using this phrase, I think it's very accurate. I try not to exaggerate things at all. I think he's dreading the cross. Dread is a good word for how Jesus feels about the cross. We should see his agony in this passage. Someone who avoided, I think it's meaningful. I think it's important. I think it shows us the goodness 
But as we see how bitter it was, we realize how good it was, what he what he did for us when he went to the cross. But also, this same agony is abused by some more liberal or progressive teachers who want to suggest that Jesus, like, didn't know what was... It's weird that they say this, because when you study the passage, you'll see it doesn't make any sense. They want to say Jesus didn't know what was coming. He was confused and 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 uncertain about why he was on the cross. He doesn't know why he's there. This is something Bart Ehrman says. I'll, I'll get to this. Uh, when we get act- actually to the cross, we'll get into more detail on that. But that would be to demonstrate there's two errors. One error is thinking Jesus is like composed and peaceful, full of like light joyfulness. And the other one is to think that Jesus is actually confused and doesn't know what's going on. And he feels like, what happened? I th- this isn't the plan, like that kind of attitude. Both of those are totally wrong. They don't fit the text of scripture, the divinely inspired communication we're being given in the gospel of Mark. Speaking of which... Here we go. Let's read through the passage. Mark 14, verse 32. We'll go all the way through 52. Just reading it, loading the ideas in our head, trying to take it all in in context. Then we'll go through it piece by piece and methodically study this passage of scripture for the just mining it for the deep, important theological truths, um, emotional help it provides us, which I believe it will, as well as neat stuff, including probably the weirdest verse in the gospel of Mark is in today's passage. So that's all the preview you get. Here we go. Mark fourteen thirty-two. They came to a place named Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass by him or pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, when he was betraying him, uh, now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. There's the weird part. <laughs> That's the strangest verse, perhaps in the two verses, in, in, perhaps in the entire gospel of Mark. And we'll get into theories on who this young man was and why, why is it there? It's actually kind of interesting stuff. Um, but 
that was your preview. What we're going to do now is we're going to go through this very thoughtfully, very carefully, because there's surprising theology in the Gospel of Mark here, uh, as, there, as there usually is. When you study these things deeply, you find that there's treasure for those who dig, you know, and, and we're going to get some of that. There's deep symbolism there. It connects with the Psalms. It connects with uh, Jonah. Interestingly enough, this stuff connects with Jonah. It also connects with Adam in the Garden of Eden, and all those connections are happening right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Deep, interesting, thoughtful things. Now, they came to a place named Gethsemane. That's what Mark 14, 32 says. That's the first thing we're going to talk about. Gethsemane, you can actually go there nowadays today. Gethsemane um, is a place where there are all these olive trees. There's, there's actually a garden still where they grow olive trees. And the word Gethsemane means olive press. So Garden of Gethsemane is a garden of the olive press. Um, I think there's an interesting symbolism potentially there. And I'll just say potentially. I don't want to be dogmatic about things that uh, we don't need to be dogmatic about. Why, why, you know, escalate stuff like that? But it is interesting that the garden is the garden of the olive press. And it is where Jesus has pressed so hard that, that he sweats blood. That's pretty intense. Where he says he's distressed and grieved. Where he says that he's grieved up to the point of death. Grieved as much as possible. And... And this is intense, intense, intense. What he's going through, he, here he prays that the cup would pass. And it's there at the olive press. And the way that you get olive oil, right? You take an olive and you just smash the tar out of it. Actually, technically, you smash the oil out of it. And uh, Jesus is pressed and there comes love and obedience. This is a picture of the Garden of Gethsemane, what you're seeing here. These are one of the trees. These trees are hundreds and hundreds of years old. They don't go back to the time of Christ, but they do go back a very long time. In the time of Christ, there really was a garden here, it seems, um, where olive was grown, uh, olives were grown. Now, what's interesting is that very recently, there's been an archeological discovery. This has just happened. This is like a hot off the presses. I actually uh, just heard about it this week as I was studying for this, this study. And they were digging a tunnel there. If you look at this picture, you see in the background, in the far background, that little gold dome, that's where uh, the Temple Mount is located. That's Jerusalem. But where that wall is, that's kind of where Jerusalem ends. And as you come this way towards us from the picture, you, you, you have a, a downward, traveling down, you go down to the Valley of Kidron. That's where the dig is taking place that you're looking at on screen. If you keep going up to where the photographer's taking the photo, you start to come to the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane. So you can see how close Jesus is to Jerusalem when he's at the Garden of Gethsemane. But recently they were digging a tunnel and there was a, a cave-in over here and it led to an archaeological discovery of a bath. I know you're like a bath. What's the point? Well, I, I put a link if you want to read more about the discovery in the video description. You can read about that there. This recent discovery in Israel, an archaeologist, uh, Re'em, talks about it, uh, Israeli archaeologist. And long story short, how it applies to today's study, interestingly enough, is that they think that this, this ritual bath was most likely there because olive production was happening very nearby. Because of the Jewish kosher laws, they had to have ritual cleansing in order to produce the olives so that people could partake of them, eat them and, you know, use them in cooking and things like that. So this is a bath that coincides well, coincides well with a first, because it goes to the first century. This is the only thing they found in the area, that exact area, uh, the Valley of Kidron from the first century, the only thing they've ever found because everything's all buried, right? So they're not digging all the time. And it coincides well with the uh, New Testament teaching here that Jesus was in the Garden of the Olive Press. I thought that was pretty cool. I thought you might want to know about it. As we continue, so they come to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then in verse 32, 
Here we go. Um, he says to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. So he has a request for them. Like, I want you to stay here. I want you guys to wait and, and sit here until I've prayed. Um, he's also going to ask them things like what to watch and to pray that they don't enter, enter in temptation. So to understand the scene, we want to know what is Jesus doing? Well, first off, it's nighttime. It's late nighttime. It's like midnight, right? It's it's maybe 11 p.m. or 1030 or something when, when this whole thing starts. Um, it's about three hours long that he's in the garden. And during that time, he wants them to sit and wait and be near him and pray. And as I'm looking at this passage, um, I think we're meant to think of the humanity of Christ in the garden of Gethsemane because he's so, he's so raw and exposed emotionally and psychologically. And so as he asks them to be near him, I think that that's one of the reasons for this whole thing. He just wants them to be near him. I think Jesus is going through real hard times. He's suffering like a lot, a lot, and he wants them to be near him. He's human. He is just a human. And, and he has that, that sense, that need to just have others around him while he is going through his hard times. And the sad reality is that he's going to actually end up being alone. They fall asleep and then, then they end up fleeing. They betray him. One of his friends, Judas, comes to, to stab him in the back effectively, right? Uh, betray him with a kiss. This is a moment where Jesus is feeling incredibly alone except the father's still with him, but humans fail him. And that's an important theological teaching that we're getting in the garden. All the humans utterly fail. So he asked them to be near him. In the next verse, we'll find in um, verse 33 that uh, he takes with him Peter, James, and John. And we get this from the other gospels as well. They, they, um, the, the 11 are there. Judas isn't there, but the 11 are there. And there may be some other kind of looky-loos they're hanging around. We'll find out later. But the 11 are there. And then he takes the three, Peter, James, and John. These are the special three that, that always travel with Jesus to like really things that no one else is allowed to go to. They're with Jesus when he heals the little girl in Mark 5. He raises her from the dead. They're the only ones that see Jesus do that resurrection. They're with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when they see his glory revealed. And then now they're with Jesus. They're the ones closest to Jesus when he's praying this desperate prayer. And he's in just like he's dreading and he's grieved to the point of death. He's under incredible emotional strain. They're the closest to him. So from their perspective, this is interesting, like a theological thing. These three have seen Jesus raise the dead. They've seen the glory of Jesus revealed. And the father saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, showing he's greater than Moses and Elijah. This is back, flashback to previously in the, in the Gospel of Mark series. There's a link to the whole series down below if you're interested in going through it with me. And um, over a year of, of, the, of time going through this stuff. And then the third thing that they've, they're now seeing is Jesus in despair. Jesus grieving. Jesus like in some version of despair. He's not without hope. He's never without hope. But he's he's just intensely emotionally beat down. And uh, I think that's interesting because it creates confusion for them. But it all makes total sense when you understand the gospel. Jesus is the one who has the power over death as he raised the little girl. And Peter, James, and John saw it. Jesus is the one who has the, is God's glory now manifested in our very presence. He is the son of God. He is God with us. And so he's, he's glorious, but he's, he's hidden in this human. And then we have Jesus beat down, Jesus suffering, Jesus carrying the weight of the sin of the world upon his shoulders. And I think it's powerful. So he takes with him Peter, James, and John, and he wants them to be near him. Now, this is where uh, some people would say, how did anybody know what Jesus prayed? Um, you know, Luke says that Jesus went a stone's throw further than Peter, James, and John. 
And so some will say, you know, there's no way they could have known what Jesus was saying at this time, what his prayer was. Plus they fell asleep. This is, um, I'm not, I'm not making this up. This is what some commentators have mocked. Like, as I'm reading a bunch of commentaries on this, they literally mock this objection to the gospel. I don't want to do that because I'm not trying to hurt people's feelings here, but I'll say this, that um, most people think this is a pretty bad objection. And if you think this is good, you're like, yeah, how did they hear Jesus? Then let me just suggest to you that skeptical questions aren't powerful unless a case can be made for them. A mere question is just a question. There's no power in it. Shouldn't be any power in it. How did they hear Jesus? Well, probably because a stone's throw is a very generic term for going a little further. And Jesus is praying. It was, it was actually typical back then that Jews, when they prayed, they prayed out loud. It was not normal for them to pray quietly. We even get this with uh, Hannah when she's praying in the in the Old Testament. And the high priest uh, hears her praying, and he's he's like, she's she's mumbling. She's praying quietly to herself, like, oh God, da, da, da. and he can't hear her. He thinks she's drunk. Why? Because it was just not normal to see people pray quietly like that. But that that to say, when Jesus prays, he's probably playing, praying kind of loudly. They, they hear him and then they fall asleep because they're tired. It's been a long day. At any rate, any, any rate we'll move on. Um, they're also supposed to keep watch, Jesus says. And this is the idea is to watch out. And here I want to... Um, I want to highlight this. You're like, why are they keeping watch? Because it's ironic to say, hey, disciples, I want you to keep watch. Yet, usually you keep watch to warn about like somebody bad coming to hurt you, right? But Jesus wants that to happen, or at least that's the plan. So why are they keeping watch? And I think this is it. I think Jesus can't sleep. They are not supposed to sleep because they're keeping watch because they're supposed to see Judas coming. Why? Here's the big important thing. Because when Judas shows up to betray him, it's very important that the way this plays out is that Jesus actually walks toward Judas so that he's not caught on by surprise. This is important to show that Christ is intentionally moving towards the cross. He's intentionally walking forward to the betrayer. He's literally waiting in the garden for Judas to betray him. That means at this moment, all Jesus has to do to avoid the cross is walk over the hill. That is, here's Jerusalem. Here's the valley right, the valley of Kidron, then here's the garden of Gethsemane, and this is the Mount of Olives. If he just keeps going a little further, walks over the hill, walks over to Bethany where his friends are, he won't be crucified. All he has to do is walk away. But it's important that when Judas shows up, people see him coming so Jesus can voluntarily move forward. It shows us that he's accepting and embracing the cross. And that's the big lesson of the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus intentionally embraces the cross over and against what some liberals want to say about it. And I say liberals, I mean theological liberals. I'm not talking about politics. Um, let's see here. Um, also, he wants them to pray. And we'll we'll talk about this too. He wants them to pray. Um, let me go to the text. He, you know, he's, he's like, hey, um, uh, pray. And then, uh, oh, it's in Luke. Luke 22, 40, we get this extra piece of information. He tells them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Right later, he rebukes them like, you know, watch him pray, watch him pray. You're not praying, you're not watching, you're not staying awake. But here in Luke, he tells one of the reasons why he wants them to pray. And he wants them to pray that they may not enter into temptation because they're about to go through a major trial. And here, I think there's a simple practical lesson. I won't labor the point because I have way too much to tell you guys about today. The point is this. I think that neglected prayer can connect to a lot of the failings we have in our walk with Christ. I think that, and, and I don't mean this in a condemning way. Let's let's pretend that you don't have to feel bad for a second about not praying enough. That it's not about that emotional guilt. Rather, it's about not entering to, into temptation. That somehow there may be a real 
a real thing here where when you pray more, you sin less because you've been praying, because praying is engaging in the new man, engaging in the, the walking in the spirit, is doing these, these wonderful good things. And also, it may be that there's battles you have with sin in your daily life that might be a lot easier if you spent more time in prayer. Now, I'm not trying to advocate that every Christian has to spend four hours a day in prayer in the morning or something like that. I'm just saying, pray that you might not enter into temptation. Like, pray for that. Pray about those issues of sin. Like, make it an actual thing in your life where prayer is like... Um, there's a spiritual benefit that you get from prayer. It's not just about asking God for things. It's about relation with him. It's about uh, engaging in walking in the spirit as you're praying. And it's also about supplication and asking for things and all that. But there's also just this spiritual benefit that happens when you pray. Pray. If you're dealing with sin, if you're dealing with a sin that's been going on and on and on and on and on, um, what if you just devote some season of time every day, some portion of time, whether it's 30 seconds or an hour, I don't know, whatever you think, devote that time to prayer on that issue and on other issues and see what impact it has because I think there's a real connection. Um, now we're going to get a shocking, shocking description, the most shocking description of Jesus that there is, I think, in, in, in the Bible because it's about his emotions. And on one side, Christians have been uncomfortable with this through the years. I think that's one reason why these paintings have Jesus like so like, oh, like he's sweating blood and he's like, <laughs> like no sweat, no problem. <laughs> and, um, and yet, yet it's true. And we should accept it. Jesus really felt this way. But skeptics want to abuse it on the other hand. So we're going to find that middle ground where we just try to stay faithful to scripture and we don't um, alter scripture to be more comfortable for us. We also don't take hard truths and abuse them as often happens with skeptics or um, false religions. Here we are, verse 40, uh, 33. But he said to him, Lord, with you, um, wait, verse 33, that's wrong. Or, oh, I'm in Luke 22. That's why. <laughs> Mark 14, verse 33. I'm like, that wasn't right. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And these are strong terms. Very is added here for emphasis. Distressed wasn't enough. Troubled wasn't enough. Distressed and troubled wasn't enough. Mark says, very distressed and troubled. And then to add to this, look at how he describes himself. He said to them, my soul, my soul, his suke in the Greek, is deeply grieved, deeply grieved. We'll talk about this word in a second. To the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. He tries to tell them, I'm going through such a hard time. Can you guys just stay here and keep watch? I think that's very human. I think he's going through really, Jesus is experiencing incredible weakness right now. And he holds up under it. He does the right thing, but he goes through every bit of it. Every, every butterfly in the stomach, every sense of anxiety. His heart is probably racing. His, 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 he's sweating because of fear, anticipation, anxiety about the things that are coming. And, and it's not just the cross. It's the cross. It's the, it's the pain we'll talk about what the cross is like later. It's the weight of the world's sin. It's the sense of shame that he has to walk through and experience what represents the condemnation of the sin of mankind. Uh, I think there was the, the spiritual sense of what happened on the cross is, <clears throat> is just as bad as the physical, if not worse. Jesus is looking at all that. He's also experiencing a relational pain in that Judas himself is the one betraying him, in that 
the Jerusalem and Israel that he saved and he brought out of Egypt, that he gave his laws and that he is now there to preach to is rejecting him, his own people rejecting him. Like this hurts his heart. Okay. This is a painful, difficult thing to go through. And, um, and he says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Let's talk about this. Deeply grieved to the point of death. What's the point of speaking this way? Um, this is a strange expression for us in English. Jesus is grieved to the point of death. Like, do you wonder, like, why did he say it that way? That's just like a weird way of saying things. Um, I think that you could, you know, some people want to translate it this way. They go, Jesus is saying, I'm deeply grieved because I'm, a, I'm going to die. Like, so deeply grieved, like on account of my coming death. Um, you could try to translate it that way. But I, from what I've read among scholars here, it seems like that's not a very viable translation. It's more that he's saying, I'm de I'm grieved to the point of death that his grief is like as extreme as death is. Does that maybe, maybe putting it that way makes more sense. Um, in other words, he's as grieved as he can be. It's when you're like looking for an expression, you know, I have relatives that would say, um, I love you to the moon and back. I, I know a lot of other people say this too, but what they're doing is they're, they're saying something big and crazy so they could say, I, you know, I love you as much as I can find words to tell you about. And so here he's grieved as much as he can find words to tell you about. The grief is intense. He's as grieved as he can be. Now, let me point this out. This is where uh, skeptics want to say Jesus is grieved because he doesn't know what's happening, because he's, he's, he's confused about what's happening. And I think this is one of the weirdest and most foolish interpretations, I'm being honest here, of the Bible you can get. If Jesus didn't know what was happening, he would just be like, la, la, la in the garden. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be grieved. He's only grieved because he knows he's going to the cross. He's only grieved because he knows how important it is. He's only grieved because he knows it has to happen and why it's happening. And that's why he's willing to keep going forward, even though he doesn't want it, even though he hates this experience. He, according to Hebrews, he despises the shame. He despises it. But he's going to take it and drink that cup. He's going to go through it anyways. So where the skeptics would say, um, he's grieved showing his confusion. He doesn't know what's happening here. Jesus is confused. Like to kind of take away the deity of Christ or take away the agenda and plan of God. Um, but obviously he's only grieved because he knows what's going to happen. All he has to do is walk over the hill and leave. He knows Judas is coming to betray him. He just has to leave. That's all he's got to do. Just walk away. Because that's the only place Judas knows he'll be. Um, now, there's actually some really interesting Old Testament connections to this phrase where Jesus says that his soul, that's suke, is deeply grieved. That's one Greek word, paralupos. And these two words together where a suke is paralupos, that's very rare. There's only two places in the Bible where we see this happening. And those two places are Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Now, the reason I'm going to really emphasize this for us is because if you've been following with me in the whole Mark series, and I, I really recommend you do. If you've been following in the Mark series, you realize that Mark all the time uh, in the gospel of Mark, there's these subtle, and it's often from Jesus's own lips. There's these subtle allusions to the old Testament that are actually very enlightening when you, when you, when you go to them and look right, like Jesus walking on the water and the connection with the book of Job that I still am excited about that, even though it was months ago. Um, that happens all the time in the gospel of Mark all the time. So when I see these two words together, and they're only together like this in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation that was available at the time, they're only together in two Psalms. And I look at the two Psalms and the Psalms connect not only to what's happening in the garden, but they connect to what's been happening before the garden and after the garden. And they connect to other things Jesus says, because Jesus is going to quote 
Jonah as well. And Jonah also quotes Psalm 42. And so there's like all this interconnectivity going on. It means we should pay attention. I'll explain. Here we go. Let's look through Psalm 42. Um, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. So I, I, I need you like the deer needs, needs, needs the water. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? This is things they were saying to Jesus very shortly after this, after he gets betrayed. Things, these things I remember and I pour out my soul within me for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. Now this, I got to highlight. The psalmist is saying, I'm currently in a place of being downcast of, of, and I'm longing for my, my close relationship with God that I was experiencing before. I want that, right? I'm, I'm beat up. I'm down. I and then he flashes back to a glorious time in the past where the psalm writer is leading a procession of people on their way to the temple, the house of God, and with the joy of Thanksgiving. And it's specifically happening at a festival or a feast day of Israel. Now, Jesus just a week prior to his crucifixion, uh, or actually to his resurrection, you know, several days, just a few days before this event that's happening right now in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was leading a procession of people to the temple of God for the festival, right, for Palm Sunday. He goes and he comes in on the donkey and they're yelling Hosanna and it's a procession and they go to the temple in procession. Literally, Jesus just led that and it's flashing back to that glorious moment. And that was a glorious thing. They're, they're, they're basically saying he's the, he's the Messiah, the son of David. But this psalm works so well with what Jesus is going through right now. It's not surprising that you find Jesus saying something that's similar to Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Okay, that's perilupos, that's suke. Why are you in despair, O my soul, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. There's a, I'm down now, but there's a future time where I will praise God again. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, and there it is again, my soul's in despair. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the, and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. These are all locations that are distant from, from the temple. And so the idea is uh, I was close and now I'm far. Now I'm so far. That's the feeling that is giving. Obviously, he's not in all these locations, Jordan and Hermon and Mount Mizar. These are different places. So this is metaphorically saying, I'm rem remembering you from, from being far from you right now. This is, this really fits what Jesus is going through. Then he says, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. Now this, um, I want to point out, this uh, deep calls to deep is actually quoted by Jonah in Jonah 2.3. Deep calls to deep. We often have these worship songs we do nowadays. You guys have probably heard, um, and they're beautiful worship songs where we sing, as deep cries out to deep. Right? That phrase is in a few different worship songs. Um, and it's usually being used as if it was as like the depth of my heart cries out to the depth of God's heart. Like for deep from within, I'm calling out to you, God. I think that's cool. You can sing that. It's definitely not what the Psalms mean when they use the phrase deep calls to deep. Deep calls to deep is not a positive thing. It's very negative. Deep being um, uh, like, like the oceanic deep, something dangerous and scary. And it's as though um, a, the deep, deep of the ocean is like throwing waves at you and the waves are trials and hardships and pain. Okay, deep calling to deep here is I go from one hardship to another hardship. 
I'm going through all kinds of hard things. And you can get this in the rest of the verse. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Right? The breakers and waves. That's the deep, the ocean throwing these breakers and waves. And they're just beating me up. So, so yeah, you can sing the worship song. Just know that when you come to the text of scripture, that's not what that phrase means in the Bible. You might mean that when you're worshiping. That's fine. You can use phrases for different things. Just don't get confused about the Bible. But Jonah quotes this, and he quotes this interestingly. Remember this, because we're going we're gonna to look at Jonah in a minute, about seven minutes, and it's going to be really neat. But Jonah actually quotes Psalm 42 as well, and he quotes it relating to his experience inside the fish or the creature. We don't know what it was. The Hebrew just means some kind of sea creature, some kind of big thing in the water. And, um, and Jonah talks about it being related to his experience inside this sea creature. And the sea creature experience, Jesus relates to his time in the tomb, his death on the cross and his time in the tomb. And so this connects to Jonah and Jonah's typology of Christ. Well, Jesus is going to connect to that as well later. Just, just keep it in your head. Forgive me if I'm at all confusing. But if you've been following along with me for very long, you're probably used to this. All right. Um, as we read on, it says, The Lord will command his loving kindness in, day, in the daytime. Not now, it's going to be in the daytime and it's in the early morning, you know, when the sun rises, pun intended there. And his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. And indeed, Jesus is praying in the night, during the hardship, during the pain. And Psalm 42 taps into that. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Oh man, this is so appropriate for Jesus now. Uh, in the garden heading towards the cross, it completely fits the, the moment of Jesus' life. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And as a, shattering, as a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Again, the same thing will be said to Jesus later. Why are you in despair, O my soul? There's the phrase. And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. You know, the things that Jesus alludes to just before the cross and even on the cross, there are these passages that speak of the forgotten, forsaken one who yet has hope in God in the future, um, bringing him back, bringing him back to life, so to speak. Let's look at Psalm 43. The only other place this uh, suke paralupos comes into play. Uh, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against the ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. That's... I mean, yeah, Judas, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Now you had read this Psalm years before and thought, man, this is pretty intense. Like, why has God rejected me? Like, this is, how does the psalmist write this? And when you realize it relates to Christ, so many of the weird things in the Old Testament that make you go, that's so strange. I don't understand that. They relate directly to Jesus. In fact, one day I'll teach it the saddest Psalm in the Bible. I mean, it's considered the most depressing Psalm in the Bible. When you look at it in the light of Christ, it's just, it opens up with beauty and meaning. We'll get there one day. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre, I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? There it is again. And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. All this to say, um, this is... This is the psalm, he's, psalms, two psalms he's alluding to at the moment when they are the most relevant in the life of Christ. 
Now, some could say, well, Mark is a genius and he's tapping into this stuff later. He's adding words to Jesus. And here you have a clever, like really witty Mark who's like cleverly adding things in or somebody is, you know, someone's adding things in and changing things. Well, we, we all agree there's a clever mind behind this. I just think the clever mind is Jesus. And I think that's more consistent than all these different authors having all the same similar clever ideas and doing all these different layers of meanings throughout the entire Bible. It's like, no, no, God's the clever one. He's the one embedding the meaning. What, you, what you're requiring is, is a human level of genius that um, is uh, not very likely to be accurate. <laughs> and so um, now let's talk briefly about Jesus saying to the point of death, because this is also a reference to scripture. I, I was like, why does he say I'm grieved to the point of death? to the point of death, that weird phrase in the Greek Thanatos, right? You're thinking of Marvel movies, right? That's just the Greek word for death. His name is Thanatos or Thanatos. At any rate, this is a phrase we find in the Old Testament in one location, something grieved or in this case, angry to the point of death. And we get it from Jonah, the same guy who quoted Psalm chapter 42. We get it from Jonah chapter four, verse nine. Then God said to Jonah, do you have a reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. It's the only time we get it. Only time we get it in the Old Testament. Angry to death. Now, it's the opposite of Jesus. Because Jesus isn't angry to death. He's grieved to death. But then, this just taps right into the whole idea of Jesus in the Old Testament. You know, I love this issue. I hope you love it too. It's so exciting to study this topic. It's my favorite series I've ever taught. Is that playlist of Jesus in the Old Testament videos I've got. But... Jonah is not like Jesus. Jonah is like the opposite of Jesus over and over again in, in the text. He, he stands as a, as a counterexample of Christ, kind of like Adam is. He, he represents us all in the garden, but he's a counterexample of what Jesus does. We'll get there in a minute. Jonah is a counterexample of Christ. He's upset about the plant. Let me rehash quickly the end of Jonah, the story. I'll just give you the 30-second version. Jonah is told by God that he has to go and preach to the Ninevites who he hates, who are evil, wicked people who have abused the Jews a lot. And Jonah doesn't want to go there. So he flees and goes to Tarshish as far as he can get from Nineveh. All kinds of turmoil happens. And eventually he's, he's thrown into the sea. He ends up being eaten by some creature, taken, spit out on the shore. And then he travels to Nineveh. Now he's learned his lesson, right? He got a serious rebuke and he'll obey God, but he doesn't like it. So he goes to Nineveh and there he preaches. In 40 days, God's going to judge you and kill you. And then he goes up and he sits on a hill outside Nineveh and he waits to see if they'll be killed. This is his hope. He's hoping they'll die. Jonah hates the Ninevites doesn't want them to be saved. And as he's waiting and watching, two things happen. A plant grows up and it becomes shade for him. God gives him miraculously, this plant grows up to give him shade, ultimately to teach him a lesson that he never seems to learn. Maybe he learns, who knows? Not in the book anyway, maybe afterwards. Um, and the other thing that happens is the Ninevites repent. And so God doesn't destroy them. Jonah's like waiting, you know, with his popcorn, waiting for the Ninevites to be killed. And no, they repent. And then Jonah's really irritated about this. And then his plant dies. His plant dies and shrivels. And now Jonah's angry. And that's what he's angry about in this passage, Jonah 4.9. He's mad about the plant because the plant gave him shade. Jonah here is not an environmentalist. It's not that he cares about the environment or he's worried about taking care of our, our, uh, our planet or something. No, no. He just wants his shade, right? He just cares about his plant. Then uh, God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death, even to death. And then the contrast, well, let me read the next verse. This is the lesson we get. And the Lord said, you have compassion on the plant. 
for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? God cares about people. Jonah cares about himself. He's selfish. That's why he wants judgment to fall on them, because he doesn't care about them. This is why he's happy to watch it happen and upset when he loses his shade. Jonah is the opposite of Jesus here. Jesus, he's told to go and he goes. He comes willingly to a rebellious and sinful people. Jonah flees. Jesus preaches and he labors and he preaches for years, not just 40 days, for years. Jesus doesn't go and wait and hope that judgment will come. Jesus responds opposite, the opposite way. He's not angry to death. He's grieved to death because he's taking the sin of the world upon his shoulders. So Jesus stands as the opposite of Jonah. Let me see if there's some other examples I can give here from my notes. Um, Jesus represents God's heart, unlike Jonah, who represents the heart of obstinate, sinful man, showing that Jonah, just like Nineveh, can only survive by the grace of God. Jonah flees. Jesus voluntarily goes to the cross. That actually happens right here in the garden. He voluntarily goes. Jonah's bitter and he wants judgment to fall. Jesus stands in our place. He's grieved, but he takes the, the judgment to, on himself. Jonah wants them to die and for himself to have the comfort of a shady plant. Jesus was nailed to a dead tree to die in our place to give us escape from judgment that we deserve. So Jonah and Jesus are these opposites. Now I'll just add again, Jonah he quotes the same psalm as Jesus, Psalm 42, about being in that, um, in that sea creature. And I think that there's these different connections that we're seeing in the text of Scripture because in the mind of God, this was always the plan. And he has just laid out all these connections throughout the Bible that are there for us to discover. All right, so back to Mark chapter 14, verse 35. After he tells the disciples, remain here and keep watch, it says, and he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. That's his prayer. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Uh, there's so much here. Oh, I wish I w was willing to teach us a three-hour study, but I'm not. <laughs> it'll be shorter than that. Let me move quick and it'll just be like, like little power-packed morsels of goodness. I pray for you guys. Verse 35, it says um, he was praying that the hour might pass. But what we miss a lot of the time in verse 35 is that Jesus fell to the ground. This is not Jesus' normal way of praying. Falling to the ground is not his typical thing. In fact, this is, again, in these pictures, they, they tend to get this wrong. Here's Jesus. They're on the ground sleeping. Jesus is kneeling, but he's not fallen on the ground. Jesus is probably on the ground, really. Right? In none of these is he, he's kneeling because this is probably their way of praying here. He's like looking up, he's kneeling. Um, all of these things here, he's leaning on a rock. Jesus is probably, I don't know, you guys may have been there. I've had times in my life where I am just so heavy hearted on something that I just get down on my face and pray. On my face. It just, it's just something that's intuitive to us, I think, a lot of the time when you're praying and it's deep and it's you're going through hard stuff. Jesus is going through hard, 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 hard things. He falls down to the ground and there he prays. Normally, in every other case, Jesus' prayer is mentioned. He's standing. If we get his posture at all, he's standing. He'll even be, it'll even be uh, said of him that he lifts his eyes up to heaven as he's looking up as he's praying. So, you know, we have tradition. We tend to pray, you know, like this. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't ridicule people for doing that. But, but there's all, all manner of uh, postures are acceptable in prayer. I think you should let your posture represent what you're going through. Although if I'm in a group of people and we're all praying, 
I don't just like do weird things that <laughs> might make it difficult for them to focus in prayer. But yeah, I think your posture representing your, your focus is good. So he fell to the ground and then he says, Abba, Father. Now, realistically, uh, Jesus probably didn't say Abba, Father. What you have here is two different languages. You have Abba and you have Father. Um, okay, sorry, I just got a text from somebody. I have an announcement to make for you guys. I'll, I'll do it later. Um, so he says, Abba, Father. Uh, Abba is the Aramaic, Abba, and then Father is Greek. I think Mark is giving us a translation of what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say Abba in Aramaic and then say Father in Greek. He probably said the whole thing in Aramaic most likely in this scenario. I think Jesus spoke Greek and Aramaic. But here he probably said it in Aramaic. So Abba, Abba is the Greek, and then Father. Um, we we have have come to love this term Abba, like the church. We have come, and we should love it. We should rightly love it. But we've also come to sort of misunderstand it a little bit. Let me try to break that down. Abba doesn't mean, let me just say what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean daddy. Abba doesn't mean daddy. And look, if you've said Abba's like daddy, like that's, there's, that's sort of true. But it's also sort of not accurate. So... Abba is an Aramaic term that, yes, a child would say of his father, like Papa or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Like, this is this is true. But Abba was also used if you were an adult speaking to your father. Whereas, at least in my culture, at least, you know, me speaking here from the United States of America, from California, you generally don't call people daddy after a certain age. Because daddy is like a diminutive. Um, daddy speaks of somebody usually... Not everybody, okay, maybe you call your dad daddy still and you're like 40 years old and there's nothing wrong with that. But for most of our culture, we don't do that. And because we don't do that, it means that daddy is not a great translation of Abba because Abba could even be used of a disciple talking to his rabbi, right? It's not super common, but it was used back then. And so Abba speaks of intimate relationship. That's what it speaks of. Abba, Abba means me and you are close and you are a fatherly figure to me. We are close. Father is a position father. It could be said coldly. It could be said when there's be, uh, no relationship. You could never, you could not know your father. He was never in your life. He's still your father, but he's not really your Abba, is he? Because there's no real relationship going on there. When Jesus says Abba, it means there's relationship. That's what I'm saying. Abba speaks of a special relationship Jesus had with the father. Now there's two really remarkable things about this and each is more remarkable than the next. The first one is, this is not how Jews prayed. Jews back then did not call God Abba. This just wasn't a normal thing at all. They might refer to him as being the Abba like of Israel in a sense, but not, not really like Jesus did. Nobody did it like Jesus did. Jesus, he obviously had a special relationship with the Father. He obviously had a very special relationship with God. Obviously, like the Christian theology tells us he has the best relationship possible from eternity, right? The Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're all God, but they're different persons. And they've been in relationship with each other from all time uh, and, and outside of time. So there's, God is relational, inherently relational. This is how God is love. Okay, there's, let your head explode on that one for a second. It's beautiful, wonderful truths. But here's where it gets even better. The Jews didn't pray this way. Gentiles didn't pray this way. Jesus prayed this way. But after Jesus, when the church begins and the church is growing, all of a sudden, Christians are praying to God as Abba. And they're using the term to refer to their own relationship with God. And this is, this is where it gets even better. Let me give you an example of this in scripture, Galatians 4, 6. And when you realize this connects to Jesus's prayer, that's when you see the beauty of it. 
he says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, by the way, this is, this is, this is Paul quoting Jesus' method of prayer in the Gospels, Abba, Father, right? Abba, the, the Aramaic, and Father, the Greek. We have this, and yet many would suggest that the Gospels were not written yet when Paul is writing Galatians. And I think that that's interesting. Think about that. But the, here's the cool theological stuff we get from this. He calls us all sons. Okay, girls and guys were all sons? Well, yes, he calls us all sons, but not because girls are now male. This is not what we're talking about in Scripture. Um, in Scripture, we're all called the bride of Christ. That's a feminine term. I'm the bride of Christ. Like, well, not me individually, but us collectively, we're the bride of Christ. So we're all we're all feminized in a sense as the bride of Christ. Here, we're all masculized. Is that the right word? Um, and the, the reason for this is why girls and guys are both called sons of God in Scripture why the term brothers is used as a blanket sense to talk about all Christians, male and female. The reason for this in the scripture is because um, male heirs in the family, male heirs have more of an inheritance than the, than the women. Part of the reason for this back then is that the women are getting the inheritance from the guys they marry. So a woman leaves her father and mother, right? And leaves her family just as the, as the husband does. But the husband's going to inherit land and stuff from his family. His wife's going to enter into that inheritance. Her stuff, his stuff is her stuff now. But the, but the man in a family, when the, when the parents die, he inherits more. He has more authority. He has more claim and a higher role in that family structure. All that to say, we're all sons. Because male, female, all of us have the same relationship with God now that Jesus had. Abba. You have God as your Abba. God is your close, real good relationship, healthy father figure, ultimately spiritually, your heavenly father. This is God. You have the highest inheritance possible. You inherit all things in Christ, male, female, all the same. So, so we're all called sons here because there's a, not that we're male, but we're all um, gaining that high inheritance. We all have the position of Christ in relationship to the father. Now I want to be careful with this. I'm not suggesting you are Christ. What we're saying is, Jesus has a perfect relationship with the Father, and he says, hey, because of my relationship with the Father, my spirit will enter you. You will have a perfect relationship with the Father too. That's it. It's not changing, um, not becoming little gods or something creepy like that. We're just having perfect relationship with God. So all that to say, um, this is this is beautiful. This is striking. This is unparalleled. Jesus says, Abba, like nobody else did at the time. And then all these Christians start acting like they got that kind of close relationship with God too. Why? Because Jesus brings you in. God loves you. Yeah. Um, now, though, that does, however, mean that those who say that everyone is God's child, every, God's everybody's Abba, and that's actually not true. It's only if you come to Christ. It's only when you know Jesus and you've, you've received the spirit of God that then you can, you can, by the spirit of the son, you can cry out, Abba, Father. Apart from that, you're not a child of God. And this is where modern pop religion would suggest everyone's a child of God. We're all right with God. And actually, the, I mean, the beginning of the gospel is like, we're not all right with God. Jesus makes us right. Then you become a child. Then you cry out, Abba. Then we get the request of Jesus. Jesus' request in Mark is to avoid the cross. Um, now, keep in mind, Jesus knew everything about this stuff. He knew he was going to the cross. He knew it had to happen. But he's, he's pouring his heart out. I want to not go through with this. I, I'd rather not experience this. He began to pray that the hour might pass him by. And he prays this. And let's break down the prayer. 
all things are possible for you. This is a great attitude in prayer. God can do anything that is possible. Everything, everything that's logically possible is something God can do. Then he says, remove this cup from me. Now, this is where a lot of people in their prayer. God, you could do anything, so do this. End of prayer. And I've even heard, and I'll have to mention this because I've heard it so many times. I've heard some more of the uh, people who care and, and love the idea of miracles, and I do too. I've heard them pray and say that in your prayer, when they're teaching people how to pray, they say, don't pray, God, your will, not mine. Don't pray that. They actually tell people not to pray that. And that's where I just want to start overturning tables. <laughs> because Jesus doesn't end the prayer there. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. I realize that what I, my heart is breaking because this thing is happening to me. I, I know God can fix it. He can help me. He can change things. But I don't want... What I will, God. I want what you will. So here's my prayer. Help me through this. Get me past this. Overcome this. Change this. Fix this, Lord. But yet, not what I will, but what you will. Why? Because I know your plan is good. And if you say, I still want you to go through this, I know there's a good reason for it. I trust you. This is the posture in prayer Jesus models for us. If you feel you can say, Abba, because of Jesus. If you feel like because of Jesus, you can say, God can do anything. If you feel you can pray for avoiding of trials and getting away from hard things and the healing of a loved one and, and getting rid of the suffering that you're going through, then you can also say, yet not what I will, but you, what you will. Jesus models for us incredible, genuine submission to God in the midst of the darkest, darkest moments of life. And that's what we need to learn. Let's talk about the cup briefly. Actually, we'll talk about two things, the Trinity and the cup. Okay. The doctrine of the Trinity holds that there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are different persons. I believe completely in the doctrine of the Trinity. I think it's 100% biblical. Um, some people complain that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. Um, if they actually pay attention to their theology, they'll realize a lot of their theological words aren't found in the Bible. This is like a kindergarten complaint against the doctrine of the Trinity. The question is, is the teaching that the doctrine of the Trinity summarizes, is that found in scripture? That's the question. And the answer is yes. And um, here he says, all things are possible for you. First off, you get that Jesus is one you and the father is in, and the father is a different you. So that's why Jesus could say you and then talk about me. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. That father and the, and the son are different persons. Not what I will, but what you will. So we have different persons, but we also have a different will going on. Now, you can't have a will unless there's a person there to will it. Flowers don't have wills. My cup of water does not have a will, although I'm thirsty. See that segue to drinking water? That was pretty, that was pretty good. I'm very professional. Um, but Jesus and the Father represent wills. That's, that's interesting. I don't know how all the interplay of this works, but I know that it's consistent with the doctrine of the Trinity and it's inconsistent with what some people try to say about like uh, modalism or oneness. Some of those things don't seem to work very well with this. There's another thing I'll bring up and that is a theological position on the cup. Remove this cup from me. Um, now, some of you guys know I, I appeared in the um, American Gospel 2 film, Christ Crucified. And for those who've seen it, I don't worry if you haven't seen it. You, you're welcome to check it out. Um, I, I don't think I think you have to pay for it to see. It. I'm not really sure. You have to go Google it. I don't remember at the moment. Um, but I'm just in there for a few a few scenes briefly, really briefly. Most of the film does not include me. But in addition uh, to me, there's others. There's a bunch of other godly, wonderful servants of Christ that are out there, and they're trying to present a defense of the biblical view of the cross. Penal substitutionary atonement is a fancy term for a doctrine they're trying to support with scripture and reasoning and all that. 
One of the ways in which people support penal substitutionary atonement, that idea, if it's new to you, it's the idea that on the cross, Jesus was suffering a penalty. That's the first word, penal, like like a penal institution. He was suffering a penalty for what I, for, well, for sin. Jesus is dying on the cross because of sin. Like that's a death, that's a death sentence because of sin. And then substitution, that middle word, penal, substitutionary. Jesus was the substitute for me. So it's for sin. He's he's paying a price for sin, but it's for my sin. He's in my place on the cross. And then atonement is the idea that this restores our relationship with God, that this washes us and cleanses us of sin, that this brings us God's righteousness. So that's just, we're just saying Jesus died on the cross for your sin. You believe in him, you're forgiven. But there are those who want to push against this doctrine. And so we did this, uh, I took part in this film to do that. I also have a series on penal substitutionary atonement, and I'll put a link down to it below. But here's why I bring all that up. Forgive me for being a little ADD at the moment on this. Um, I just wanted to throw this in here because this verse is used, even in the movie American Gospel 2, it's used in a way that I think is not right. I agree with the theology that is being supported. I just don't agree with the way it's being supported with this verse. Jeez, and here's how it goes. Jesus says, remove this cup from me. And then the question arises from the preacher. Um, what cup was Jesus referring to? And then they go to Revelation 14 to describe the cup that Jesus was referring to. Revelation 14, 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his head, forehead, or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And then it's about judgment that will fall on them. And so um, they'll say, Jesus goes, I don't want to drink this cup. And they go, the cup was God's wrath because Revelation talks about a cup and the cup is God's wrath. It's the wrath of God. It's in the cup of his anger. I have a problem with this. Um, while I do support penal substitutionary atonement and personally, I very much think that Jesus actually experienced the wrath of God, but not the displeasure of God. Um, how do I say that? I mean that on the cross, Jesus like experiences um, the wrath of God is is not just God being irritated with you. It, it It's meant to say like um, the spanking that comes because of your sin. That's we'll call that God's wrath. It's the experience of pain or suffering because of sin. doesn't mean that God's irritated at Jesus. The father's not irritated at the son. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but he experienced God's wrath, I think, in a biblical sense. But I wouldn't use this verse. And the reason is because of Mark 10, verse 38 and 39. The cup here just represents suffering. And if you look at it in that sense, Mark makes more sense. Mark 10, 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or do you be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Now, for some defenders of PSA, abbreviation for penal substitutionary atonement, they would say the cup is God's wrath. Okay, well, I acknowledge Jesus experienced God's wrath, not not his irritation, but but the wrath in the biblical sense. But this can't be that cup because in verse 39, they go, hey, we're able to drink it. And Jesus says, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And this refers to James and John getting later persecuted and suffering for the name of Christ. The only consistent way to take the cup in Mark is to consider the cup as a symbol of suffering. The cup is just suffering. Jesus is suffering for our sins. That's true. They're suffering for their faith in Christ. So they're suffering for different reasons. But it just means suffering. You are going to go and drink the cup because the cup just represents suffering. So my, my counsel is for those who, like me, want to passionately defend this doctrine, PSA, don't use this verse to do it. Just go to other places. Um, 
and um, the playlist for the that doctrine, the PSA playlist, I go through scripture, history, theology, philosophy, rhetoric. It's like six videos, tons of content there. Please check that out if you'd like more information on that. Now, let me again mention real quick before we go to verse 37. I told you it's going to be a longer study today because i got so much to share with you guys. There's a point missed by liberal commentators, and that is this. Jesus, he A, knows what's happening, full well knows what's happening, and B, he submits to the will of God and he goes forward to the cross. These are the things that people miss, but it is the calm before the storm. Uh, like the night leading up to a great battle, I, I could think of Gandalf and Pippin, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. It's a Lord of the Rings analogy. Uh, Gandalf and Pippin, are they're, they're, they're having a conversation before the battle where the armies of Mordor are, I feel like such a dork, are like coming out and they're at Minas Tirith. And, anyway, they're expecting to lose the battle. Like they think it's a really long, it's a long shot that they're going to survive. So they kind of feel like they're going to die and they're all stressed out and they're worried. That's what Jesus is going through. This is the calm before the storm. This is Jesus' last chance to run, but he stays put. And he says, your will be done. Jesus has victory in this great moment of temptation to flee the cross. And he did it for you and me. And we should appreciate this is just, just an act of love. Verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not wa keep watch for one hour? Notice that he says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? This, this is kind of diminutive towards Peter because it's kind of like saying, Peter, you're not acting very much like a rock at the moment. There's something kind of negative about this. And he says, you couldn't watch for one hour. This is the same Peter who said, um, you know, I'll, I'll die with you. And he won't even stay and watch for an hour. He won't stay awake for an hour. And I think, again, our, um, our attitude towards little temptations says more about us than our big boasts about big temptations. Well, I would never do that. I would never cheat on my spouse. But would you, would you look at another woman? Would you look at another man? Would you entertain fantasy thoughts about them? Oh, well, that's different. Well, is it? I mean, yeah, it's different, but it's just another step on the same path. And so he thought, I'll die with you, but he wouldn't keep awake with him. Then he says, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We talked about the idea here of, of our prayer sometimes helping us avoid temptation, that praying is important in that regard. We went to Luke, but here it is in verse 38 as well. I thought it was in there. I just uh, didn't remember which verse then, it, then he says the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak and this i think jesus is saying this in two senses one their spirit is willing in a sense but their flesh is weak but in a sense jesus his spirit is willing but his flesh is weak too jesus experienced the weakness of the flesh that's why he's like sweating great drops of blood that's why he's going through all of this intense stuff um hebrews 4 15 puts it this way i'll put it on your screen for you for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now, Jesus, I think he sympathizes with us, even in our failings, even in our, the weakness of our flesh and our regular failures of sin. That doesn't mean that it's okay. Our sin is never okay. But there is a sense in which it's like he, he looks at us and he's like, yeah, you're blowing it again. And your flesh is weak. And he knows because he went through it. Now, there's there's a... Simple application of this, which is in your life, in my life, there's hardships you've had that you've gone through. And because you've gone through them, when you meet someone else going through the same thing, you have a whole different perspective, right? 
Like I, I went through that whole season of doubt and fear and, and, and needing the evidence and, and nobody around me being able to give me answers and me just like on my own kind of isolated studying and worried and really wanting intellectual integrity and wanting to know for sure that what I believe was true and that I wasn't just delusional, all those kinds of things. I went through that whole thing. And now when people come and ask me doubtful questions, I'm not offended in the least. Someone's like, man, I'm really struggling. I'm really doubting. I, the first thing I think is, oh man, I've been there. I've been there. Tell me what's going on. You see, like, my attitude towards them changes because I felt that weakness too. Jesus understands our weaknesses because he went through weakness too. And this might sound like a cliche to people, but there are no real cliches in Christianity. There's only underappreciated truths. Jesus understands what you're going through intimately because he lived the human life and he was brought to the depths of emotional suffering. But he overcame. So it's not an excuse for us to sin, but it is nice that we have a high priest who sympathizes with us, understands our weaknesses, because he was tempted in all points like we are, but without sin. Then we get to Mark 14, 39. And it says here, he again, um, let me put it on your screen. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same word. So Jesus repeats the same prayer multiple times. He already knows what the answer is going to be, but he's pouring his heart out. He's just in the moment. He's going through it. And he's pouring his heart out. But it's in submission. He's not just complaining to God or something. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And this is interesting. They didn't know what to answer him. The implication here is they're just embarrassed. Like they're sleeping again a third time. And Jesus comes back and he's and he probably kind of points it out. You're still sleeping. You're sleeping again. And when he does, they just say, like you ever been busted for something and you had literally nothing to say. There was no nothing, no way to spin it, no way to make it look better. That's exactly the scenario that they're in right now. And he came to them a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now at this point, I want to pause and I want to do something. I didn't really know where to put this in the study, like logically, but I want to talk about the contrast that we've, we're being given between Jesus in the garden and Adam in the garden. Now, Adam stands as an example of Christ, but again, he, like Jonah, is sort of a counter example of Christ. There's ways in which he's like Christ and there's important ways in which he's different. Adam, you might, let me just kind of butter the bread a little bit to explain this. Adam um, like Jesus, he represents all of humanity and his actions can stand in the place of all of humanity. Those who are genetically connected to him, Jesus, he stands to represent all of humanity and his actions, they benefit, they impact everyone who puts faith in him because it's a spiritual connection, not just a physical one. And so Adam's represents all of mankind. Jesus represents all of mankind. Adam, when, uh, when, when he meets Eve, Eve is formed out of his side, opened up, and a, and a piece of his side is taken out and formed into Eve. And Jesus on the cross is, is pierced and blood and water pour out. And from this is birthed the church, his bride, his Eve. So Adam's put into a deep sleep. Christ, he's laid in the tomb. And when he awakens, there's, his, there's Eve. And when Jesus rises, now begins the church. So it's just these beautiful parallels that are happening. Adam is tempted. Now let's get to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Adam is tempted right? And he decides to choose the temptation. He falls, he eats of the fruit. Jesus is tempted to flee. He's tempted to flee, but he obeys and he goes forward and he is crucified. So here's where he's not like Adam. Jesus is the opposite of Adam. In the garden of Eden, that's by the way, Eden means luxury. 
delight, pleasure, or softness. Eden was like a nice place to go on a vacation, right? Like Eden's where you want to be. Gethsemane means like olive press or be crushed, to be crushed. Adam is in pleasure. Christ in the garden is in agony. Adam, he has eternal life available to him, but he eats of the tree that brings death. Jesus, he is life. He is is life. Christ is life. He chooses to suffer death, the consequence of Adam's sin. Adam is tempted and fails. Jesus is tempted and he resists. Eve fails and Adam joins in her rebellion. When Eve fails, Adam joins her. But Jesus, everybody around him fails. Judas, the Jewish leadership, the, the, all the disciples, everybody following him, everybody fails. Jesus doesn't join them in their failures. He instead stands faithful to God and does the right thing. We fail. Jesus pays the cost. Adam chooses sin and gets death deservedly. Jesus chooses not to sin. He only does righteousness and he gets death he doesn't deserve. Adam, his curse is connected to Jesus and his cross. This is so cool. I love this. Adam's curse and Jesus' experience uh, in Gethsemane and leading up to the cross. Um, you guys know in Genesis 3, right? Adam gets the curse and God tells him a few things will happen. You're going to, by the sweat of your brow, and hard labor, you will bring forth fruit from the earth. And he also tells him that um, he's going to die from dust to dust. You're going to die. And he also tells him there'll be thorns and thistles brought forth from the ground, making your life harder and more difficult. So sweat of the brow, thorns and thistles, death. These are the three things that relate to the curse of Adam. Right? Directly, specifically about Adam. Jesus experiences these three things in different ways from the garden to the cross. By the sweat of your brow, we read in Luke that Jesus was sweating great drops of blood from his brow, right? He's sweating these things. And I think that this relates to him taking on the curse of Adam. This is symbolically meant to show you, and he vividly went through it, that he was going through what relates to the curse of Adam. So theologically, there's a connection here. Now, some are skeptical about this. And I remember hearing this years ago. They'd say, oh, there was no great drops of blood. This is ridiculous. Luke's making stuff up. And so some skeptics would, would challenge Luke here and say, this is legendary development. This is evidence that things are being fabricated. The story's being embellished and added to over the years. And when Luke finally writes it down, now there's great drops of blood. Interestingly enough, the reason they make this claim is because they say that people don't sweat blood. That's just medically wrong. But that's actually not true. People don't normally sweat blood, but there is a rare condition called hematidrosis. I recommend you go and Google it. Hema, hema, tidrosis. I'll spell it for you. H-E-M-A-T-I-D-R-O-S-I-S. I'll read to you now from a WebMD article on the topic. Hematidrosis or hematidrosis or hematohydrosis is a very rare medical condition that causes you to ooze or sweat blood from your skin when you're not cut or injured. Only a few handfuls of hematidrosis cases were confirmed in medical studies in the 20th century. So this is something we're, we're familiar with now because we have like, you know, documented medical cases at this point, but many years ago, Skeptics are often several years behind in research. Um, they may not have been able to confirm this. It also goes on to say people who have hematidrosis may sweat blood from their skin. It usually happens on or around the face. Hematidrosis, I read different sections of the article here, can look like blood, bloody sweat, or sweat with droplets of blood in it. Doctors don't know exactly what triggers hematidrosis, in part because it's so rare. They think it could be related to your body's fight or flight response. Summary. What Jesus went through is a documented, very rare documented medical condition. People who've gone through extreme suffering, hardship and suffering, 
and are in major emotional strain sometimes experience this. It may be related to fight or flight response, which is exactly what Jesus would have experienced. Waiting in the garden for his betrayer to come, knowing he would be in chains or he would be bound from there on out. The last moment of freedom before the pain began and Jesus is sweating blood. If, if a skeptic's going to say this is not medically realistic, therefore it's legendary, then I'm going to respond and say it's medically realistic, therefore it's probably historical. And it doesn't seem very likely that something that, you know, with modern uh, medical research we know is real, it doesn't seem super likely that the people writing the Gospels are really well well aware of hematidrosis and its causes and go, hmm, let's pretend Jesus had this. Like, more likely, it's just a historical fact. And I think that's pretty cool. So the sweat of your brow, that relates to Adam. Um, also, you will die. Okay, obviously, the relation between Adam and Jesus is clear here. Jesus goes to the cross and dies. He even dies on a tree, which connects to the idea of, you know, the cross is wood. It's made of tree. And Adam, you know, is kicked out of the garden because of eating from the tree. Also, thorns. The third thing is thorns. Thorns and thistles the ground will bring forth for you, Adam, and you're going to have difficulty. Sweat of your brow, death, thorns and thistles. Jesus on the cross is given a crown, but it's not a normal crown. It's meant to mock and ridicule him, and it's meant to hurt him. It's a crown of thorns. This is something that the Romans would sometimes do. It's just a way of hurting people. But when Jesus is given this crown of thorns on his head to stab into his head and cause him blood, more, more believing than he already had, I think this represents Jesus taking the curse of Adam upon himself. Because Jesus not only redeems mankind, but he buys back the world. He reclaims the universe in the name of God. And here he takes the curse that's on nature, creation, and he wears it on his head because he's also redeeming all things. I think that this is amazing. I think it's beautiful. It's brilliant. There's definitely a brilliant mind behind the life of Christ and behind the Gospels. And I think that brilliant mind is, is God. <laughs> so verse 41, let's read on. Let's read on. And he came the third time and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now Jesus is going to go forward. Um, it is interesting, though, that he uses the term sinners to describe the Jewish leadership. The people coming to betray him, the way they're just described here in Mark, they're, they're from the Sanhedrin, the official Jewish, Jewish rulers. But he calls them sinners. I'm being betrayed at the end of verse 41 into the hands of sinners. Why do I highlight this? Because um, this is a reversal of their view. They would have looked at the prostitutes, the, um, the tax collectors, the, the Gentiles, um, they would have looked at all those categories as sinners. These are people who are sinners, but not the Jewish leaders. These are the righteous. Jesus summarizes them as sinners, and they are sinners. Like they're coming to kill the Son of God. They're doing very wicked, sinful things. All this to say, um, your religion and your religious leadership is not going to be the thing that makes you righteous. It's only going to be faith in Christ that makes you righteous. How you respond to Jesus dictates your righteousness. Now, our modern culture has flipped this on its head. We, we like... Let's be honest, we like tearing down religious leaders. It's like fun. And I'm not saying I like it or you like it individually, but our culture tends to enjoy this. They like it when a big religious leader falls. It makes them feel better about themselves because when they hear Jesus say these guys are sinners, what they really think is, oh, so the prostitutes and the tax, they're the good people. 
See, they're thinking they're reversing roles. They're thinking that the religious leaders are bad, religion's bad, but normal, non-religious people, secular people in general, they're good people. They're wonderful people. That's not the biblical view. Sadly, the biblical view is that we're like all down here. It's not a reversal of roles. It's just that here's us, all sinners. Here's like these highfalutin religious leaders. Guess what? They're sinners too. Y'all are sinners. That's the biblical message. All of us need the grace of God. All of us need the love of Christ. The prostitute is still in trouble. The tax collector over there who's, who is betraying his people and mistreating them and stuff, he's also in trouble. The, the big CEO who, has, who exploits the poor, he's in trouble. The poor guy who doesn't honor God in his life, he's also in trouble. We all need Jesus. That's the message, the uncomfortable message. But it's true. And in verse 42, he says, get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And he's talking about Judas. And this is an important moment to note, again, against skeptics who want to act like Jesus doesn't know what's happening when he gets on the cross. We'll talk more about that later. But this is something that repeatedly comes up from um, more liberal scholarship, that kind of thing. Jesus deliberately goes forward. He knows Judas is coming to betray him. And he purposely, intentionally goes forward to be betrayed. It's his agenda. The important thing about the garden is to realize he doesn't like it. He's not enjoying it. It hurts. It's painful. There's a cost. It's terrible. He's dreading it. But he goes forward because of love and because he intends to be crucified for our sins. So he says to them, get up. The one who betrays me is at hand. Then in verse 43, we have the betrayal. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and and the scribes and elders. That would be the Sanhedrin the threefold chief priests, scribes and elders. Okay, that's the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish ruling party, the kind of Supreme Court in the Jewish world uh, in Jerusalem. And they come to get him. Uh, they've got clubs and swords. These are actually the two weapons that historically they would have had. The, the, the temple guard that the Sanhedrin had charge of, they would have had these things. There may have been some Romans mixed in there too, but the emphasis here is on the Jewish guard that was from the temple. In verse 44... Now, he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Jesus, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. So he calls him Rabbi, which he's rejected Jesus now. Right? His teaching is, is, he's not his rabbi really. And he kisses, kisses him. Uh, in their culture, this is not a weird thing. Okay, especially American culture, really weird. Don't come up and kiss me. Okay, right. But in many cultures, it's not a big thing to give someone a kiss on the cheek or even on the mouth, depending on the relationship. It's not to be sexualized. Those who want to do that um, are just twisting the word of God to their own destruction uh, because they've got something going on here that's not appropriate. <laughs> and so they're putting it on everywhere else. They're seeing what's in their head everywhere they look. So this was a, not a, a strange thing. What we should notice about it is that Judas is not a patsy. Like he's purposely deceiving or trying to deceive Jesus. He's purposely trying to pretend that he's he's a good guy. Now in the dark, this crowd doesn't, you know, the, the guys with swords and clubs, they're not going to be able to find Jesus well in the dark. There's no street lamps, right? They're in the garden. They're outside the city. It's very dark. It's nighttime um, amongst trees and everything. So Judas has to show them peacefully, oh, here's the right one. And then boom, they jump into action. They grab Jesus at that point. Proverbs 27.6 may connect to this very thing here. Where it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And that is exactly what Judas does. I think um, these are metaphorical. Proverbs 26 is speaking metaphorically. Like sometimes friends hurt you, but they're hurting you because they're your friend. They're trying to help you, even though it hurt. 
say things that are hard to say, uh, say no to you, right? Because they care or, um, enemies who are going to manipulate you and deceive you. They pretend to flatter you all the time. They say nice things about you to get control of you, to get you to do what they want. But I think this is fulfilled in a very literal sense. When we look at Christ in the garden dealing with Judas, um, I don't think Judas was a patsy. I think this was a mock, a mockery. The kiss was mockery. This was definitely Judas knew what he was doing. Then in verse 46, it says they laid hands on him and seized him. Now, this is the first time the word seize comes up. And uh, one of the times it comes up multiple times, it comes up four times in these in these verses right around where we're at right now. And um, verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, you guys know who this is. If you've been reading your Bible, you know from the other gospels that this was Peter. Peter's the guy who pulled the sword out and cut off the, the disciples, the servant or slave of the high priest's ear. His name was Malchus, we actually find out. Um, we talked about that last week, uh, but but I want to focus on the reason why his name is not mentioned. Uh, some make a big deal about this. I actually read a commentary. This is why I have a hard time recommending commentaries. If you guys are like, what? recommend books, Mike. Listen, I read commentaries and sometimes they have great insights. And then a, a, a paragraph later, they say something that I think is destructive and, and bad. Here's this an example of that. The commentary says, in Mark, it's one of those who stood by, which implies, according to the commentary, implies it's not one of the disciples who drew his sword and struck the high priest. So the commentary says that there's a contradiction here between Mark and John, I think it is, that says that it's Peter who does the, does the deed. He bases this on the phrase, one of those who stood by, and the fact that Mark doesn't mention Peter's name. Why doesn't Mark mention his name? I think this is really silly. Like... It's almost like being thick on purpose. Is Peter one of those who's standing by? Why, yes, he is. Peter, James, and John, the disciples, these are the only people we know of that are there other than this strange naked boy that we read about later. And um, obviously Peter's there. Like, I don't know. This is a mountain out of molehills. This is like creating contradictions out of thin air between the gospels. All we have to do is ask the question. Peter did this. We know that from John. There's no reason to doubt that. All we have to do is ask the question, why doesn't Mark mention his name? And I think the reason is because Mark in this section, he doesn't want to mention names. He doesn't even mention the name of the young man. He wants to record that it happened, but doesn't mention who he was later. He wants you to know in these verses, it's Jesus and Judas that are highlighted. And if he goes in to describe Peter as being the one who does this act with the sword, it changes your subject in your mind. Your mind goes over to Peter. What, Peter did what? Wow, why did Peter do that? And you lose your attention on Judas and Jesus. Verse um, uh, 48. Oh, it also explains this too. Um, strangely enough, there's no battle that takes place. Mark records slicing off of the ear, no battle that takes place. Um, you'd expect a bunch of disciples to die now. Swords and clubs from the, from the bad guys, killing the good guys. This is what you'd expect. It doesn't happen. When you look at the other gospels, you understand why it didn't happen, right? Jesus, for one thing, exhibited supernatural power. Read the gospel of John. They fell down when he declares who he is. Also, uh, Jesus heals the man, puts the ear back on, which would have given him a lot of authority in that moment, showing that he's deliberately going to the cross. At any rate, it explains why nobody died. There's no bloodshed after this moment. Um, here's where other gospels give information that incidentally answers questions we have that are raised by, say, the gospel of Mark, suggesting historicity. Verse 48, and Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? This is a very diminutive term, this term robber. And uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Every day I was with you teaching uh, in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. 
But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. This again confirms that it's it, there's a temple guard that's there taking Jesus. They, they were there in the temple when he's preaching. They didn't take him. Now they seize him in the dark, in the quiet, from a betrayer and deceitfully. And uh, so he shows that I'm not the robber. You guys are the ones who are doing it wrong, not me. That's the implication. But this term robber is, and, and him saying that it fulfills the scriptures is very interesting. He's probably talking about Isaiah 53. Because repeatedly in the Gospel of Mark, during the Passion narratives, this section we're in, Isaiah 53 is appealed to over and over again. And so here it may be again, where it says, I'll allot him a portion with the great. He'll divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. Remember Jesus said, is my blood poured out for you? And was numbered with the transgressors. You've come out against me as if I was a robber. And it gives us the theological interpretation. He's bearing the sin of many. He's interceding for the transgressors. He's doing this to save us from our sin. So there's there's the Old Testament reference that we may have. And again in Mark later on, we get this robber phrase. And this is when Jesus is on the cross. It says they crucified him, uh, two robbers with him, one on his right hand, one on his left. So he's numbered with the robbers, with the transgressors. Robber here doesn't just mean a thief. Somebody who goes out and steals things, it's a pejorative term for like a criminal. Uh, and so you use this pejorative term to just say he's a bad dude. He's a bad, bad man. Interesting stuff. So again, Jesus sees what he's doing in light of Isaiah 53. He thinks scripture is being fulfilled, even though he's agonizing over the moments in which it is being fulfilled. Then we get the weirdest place, the weirdest verse in the gospel of Mark, two verses. Um, they all leave him and fled. Uh, and then, oh, I'm sorry. Let me do verse 50 first. I almost skipped it. Silly me. Uh, the point here is that Ju Jesus is alone. Jesus is alone in the garden. The only one with him is the father. He's alone. Humans have all abandoned Jesus. This is an important theological point. It's not just to say, oh, look how hard it is for him. That's true. That's part of it. But there's a theological point where Jesus is alone, the faithful man. He is alone, the good one. He is the only one who does the job right and does what's right when it's hard. He's the only one who's perfect and good and holy and just. And now he goes to be sacrificed for us in our place. This is also a triple-decker Markin sandwich. I guess I'll try to scroll through the verses for you here to show you what I mean. Markin sandwich is, again, for those who might be new, a Markin sandwich is where Mark, the way he tells the story um, so he'll do three three things. He'll tell one story, split it in two, and put an additional story, a second story, in the middle of the two. This is to provide commentary on the meaning of the bigger story. That being said, this is something that should be easy to comprehend. Here's an example of probably the biggest Mark and Sandwich, the triple decker, I'll call it. And it's in Mark chapter 14, verses 18 through 21. This is where Jesus says, Judas is going to betray me. Then we have verses 26 through 28. This is where, G and you're probably not able to read it all, but this is where Jesus says that all 12 are going to desert him. So Judas will betray him. Then he goes on and says, all 12 will desert me. Then in verses 29 through 31, Peter, specifically Peter, will deny him three times. So three predictions are given. Judas will betray me. All of you will desert me. Peter will deny me three times. Then in chapter 14, we scroll way down. Notice I'm scrolling way down. There's something in the middle we'll talk about. But we scroll way down and we get to 43 through 49, these are the fulfillments of all three of those claims. Judas, he betrays him. 43 through 49, he's betrayed. Then we have 50 through 52, we have um, 
all 12 left him and flee. So all 12 deny him in the same order in which Jesus predicted. Then in verses 66 through 72, we'll get here later on next week, I think. Uh, we have Peter who denies him three times, 66 through 72. So you have three predictions and you have three fulfillments. And in the middle of all that, you have Jesus in the garden, verses um, 32 through 42, which you, you could look it up. I know I'm just scrolling around. It's probably not helping you. But 32 through 42, you could, you could see Jesus is in the garden between his predictions of their betrayal and them actually betraying him. Where is he? In the garden, alone, distressed, grieved, dreading what is to come and submitting to the will of God and choosing to go forward anyways. What is all this to tell us? The point is, Jesus is utterly alone. The only faithful one, regardless of our proclamations of loyalty, of our claims, of our attempts to be good before God, he's the only faithful one in the garden. Unlike Adam and all of us who fail, Jesus succeeds. No matter the distress, no matter how hard it is, he presses on and he does the right thing. He does the right thing. Um, I think it's beautiful. All right, verse 51. Here we go. All right, the weirdest part of the Gospel of Mark in my epic long study here. This is like the longest Mark study we've done. I, I just had so much to share and I thought, why not? All right, verse 50 and 51. They all, um, sorry, 51 and 52. The, a young man, talks about this young man, who was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body and they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. So he's running around, no clothes on. This is embarrassing. This is meant to feel shameful. This might even relate. Well, let me tell you some theories about this. The probably the most popular current theory is that this young man is actually Mark himself. And this is Mark's way as an author. This is something authors did do back then. They would occasionally write books and try to keep from admitting who they were in the book. They would kind of make themselves anonymous if they're in the book. Uh, John does this in his gospel where he calls himself the apostle, excuse me, the apostle Jesus loved, the beloved apostle. He's not just trying to brag. He's trying to not use his name because he's not trying to draw attention in that way. There's, there's something of a humility that's being spoken of there, I think. So Mark might be doing this. This is a popular idea. Mark is a young guy. He's not really a follower of Jesus during his three years. Um, but perhaps this is him. That's one theory. Now, one way to support this theory is to say this is consistent with the fact that later on we learn in, in other texts in the scripture and in history, uh, historical sources, we learn that Mark was... Uh, based in Jerusalem and probably had a wealthy parent in Jerusalem, a wealthy family and home in Jerusalem. So that would mean that he could eat realistically be there at that event. And he was probably about the right age. He was pretty young at the time. In Acts 12, 12, so even I don't know, 15, 16, 17. But in Acts 12, 12, we might get more support for this. Um, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now, this is Peter, when he gets delivered from prison, he goes to this house that everybody knows, and a lot of people are there praying, and it's Mark's mom's house, the same John Mark that wrote the gospel. So the reason why this is interesting is because this total conjecture, please realize, this is conjecture. I'm not saying this is accurate. I'm saying it's possible. It's possible that the house they went to in the gospel of Mark, where they have the last supper before they head out to the Garden of Gethsemane, that this house was Mark's house, right? Because there's a significant family who has a significant amount of money to own a large home and host lots of people in Jerusalem in the early church in Acts 12, 12, and it's John Mark's home. It might be that this is also where they have Passover. Does it mean it is? No, it's just possible. It just might be the case. And if it was the case, 
it makes sense that a young man who's excited to have Jesus, this famous Jesus and his disciples eating in his home, this young man sees Jesus and his disciples leave after Passover and he quickly throws on an outer garment and he follows them to the garden. And there he kind of watches from a distance, trying to respectfully watch from a distance. And when everything goes crazy, someone tries to grab him and he vividly remembers fleeing naked as he went back home to try to stay safe. This is possible. Now, here's the problem with this view, though. Um, we lack confirmation. It's all conjecture. It's all like maybe, maybe, maybe put together. And I would say that makes it a weak hypothesis. Okay, it's a weak hypothesis, but it's a, it is a potential. Could be Mark. It would work. It would explain the evidence. Uh, there is, however, some problems with it as well. Um, it's also a newer view. We don't have this view in church history. As far as I know, now maybe it's there and I just don't know it. But to my knowledge, nobody in the first couple centuries, the first three, four hundred years, nobody's saying that Mark wrote uh, the God. The, well, they are saying Mark wrote the gospel of Mark, but they're not saying that this young man is Mark, that this, the, the, the naked boy is Mark. Nobody's really saying that. Uh, Papias in 130, about 130 AD, about 100 years later from the time this happened, he says that Mark never heard or followed Jesus individually. So that would imply that it wasn't him. If Mark never heard or followed Jesus. Papias might be right about Mark here. That's possible. So there's alternate views. And alternate views are that it's quoting Amos 2.16. Uh, Amos 2.16, it might be that Mark knows about this event happening, about this young man running away naked. And maybe he's saying it's an allusion to Amos 2.16. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. Uh, the difficulty here is that Amos 2 doesn't have these like these messianic elements weaving through it the way, say, Zechariah does. It doesn't feel like the kind of illusion Mark usually has to the Old Testament where you read and you go, it's very rewarding. You go deeper and you see all these layers of meaning. So Amos 2.16 doesn't seem to have that. Uh, there's no obvious connection to the Messiah in Amos 2. Uh, there's no obvious connection to the events in the garden. Um, the day when which they're fleeing is a day of battle. It's not really the day of a betrayal. It's just different. Others would say perhaps um, there's a, there's symbolism there in the garden. Remember we said there's garden connections between Adam and Jesus? Well, Adam, they're, they're naked and ashamed in the garden. And so here we have, again, everyone in the, in the garden failing but Jesus, representing all mankind failing except Jesus succeeding on our behalf. And perhaps this young man fleeing naked is a demonstration that there we are naked in our shame, running from the consequences of our sin, where Jesus goes forward to suffer the consequences of our sin. Now that to me is more appealing because it gives a theological meaning that's consistent with everything else that's happening in the garden. But that wouldn't really be conflicting with it being actually being Mark. That could be true and it could still be Mark. So I don't know. I would say the idea that Mark wrote this is perhaps the best hypothesis available to fully explain why it's there in the text, but that doesn't mean it's true. I just, I would say I like it. Maybe I just want it to be true. That's possible. I should admit that. <laughs> um, and then what we're going to get into, uh, before I give you some application for today to try to give this into the heart of your life and your soul to change you, I pray. Uh, I wanted to let you know next week, we're going to be starting to continue towards the cross. We're going to get to the cry of dereliction. When we get there, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, this is a hotly debated passage. When we get to that passage in, I don't know how many weeks it'll be. That's huge. Very, very hotly debated. And when we get there, remember the garden. Because in the garden, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. And he purposely walked towards it. So if you interpret the cry on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you interpret that as Jesus not knowing what's going on and thinking that the plan has failed and not understanding what's happening, then you have ignored the entire context of Mark. You've ignored the garden, which is to set up the idea 
Jesus knows exactly what's happening. He knows why it's happening. He doesn't like it, but he's choosing it because he's going forward to die for our sins where all of us flee from the consequences in our shame, like the strange naked boy. <laughs> all right, application. Application. The application is simple. Other than simply trusting in Christ and knowing his goodness and his love for you, knowing what he went through for you, is also realizing that just when we look at Christ's cross, we look at his suffering and we see courage to go through our suffering. May you have the courage to go through agony of your own where you say, God, I don't like this. I can't handle this. It's so much. I am in more distress than I knew I was, I was capable of having. I'm grieved to death. Yet I trust you. I, I pray you take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. This is one of the best lessons Christians can ever learn. To know that God intimately loves you. And yet he may have a reason that you can't understand for the suffering you're going through. And you'll trust him in it anyway. This is such a big deal. I feel like it's the application to a lot of the studies. But it's because we need it so, so much. Jesus knows what you're going through. He's been there himself. And if you can look at his prayer and try to echo it as well. It's okay if you're in agony. Because remember this. Here's another example. Another one of many examples that Christian joy doesn't mean feeling good all the time. Because the joy Jesus had in the garden is not happy-go-lucky joy. According to Hebrews, it says the jo because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That's a description of the, from the garden on. Jesus had joy before him. The joy is the knowledge that one day this will be over. And I will be, I will be with the Father deeply, per perfectly in my, in my glorified state. And this is Jesus, right? And he will also be with us. He will have redeemed us. He will have bought his bride and brought us into his glorious embrace forever. That's the joy. The joy was what was the, was the future that helped him get through the hardship of the present. And for us, Christian joy is often that. It's knowledge of the temporariness, the temporariality, that's not a word, of the suffering we're going through today and the glory that is to come. All right, let me uh, close this in prayer. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the layers of meaning that are in here, God. We do pray to you, our Abba, because Jesus in us has given us that relationship with you. God, we're so grateful. We are um, ashamed and naked and running away. And there you are in grief, heading to the cross for us. We're grateful. We love you. We appreciate you and we worship you. We bless you. We pray that you'd help us now to see our current situations in light of the life and suffering and glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for joining me so much. I appreciate and am excited that so many of you are so excited about the word of God and about just getting like the meat of its teachings into our hearts and minds and going as deep as we can and just being mind blown all the time. But then at the end, trying to say, hey, let's really live it out. Let's really live it out because what else? What else are we doing if we're not doing that? So, yeah, I will see you guys um, this week on Friday, but next Monday, I don't, I don't know if I'll even have a live stream, but there's no, there's no Mark study because on Sundays, this Sunday, coming Sunday's Mother's Day, and we're giving that to our family to just spend time with them and love them. And so, yeah, I'm not going to be doing a study that night, this Sunday night, no, this coming Sunday, no study, which means I won't have a Mark study for you on Monday, but I may have something else. Maybe I'll do the Vocab Malone interview if he's available on um, Black Hebrew Israelites. Maybe that'll be this Monday, this coming, a week from today. I'll have to check with Vocab and see if he's available for that. So that's possible. Otherwise, that's all I got to say. <laughs>